like you to take your Bibles, please, now and turn with me once again to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Once again, we want to read together in preparation for the hearing of God's word, beginning with verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to all the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Again, let's pray for the help of God as we open up and study his word. Holy Father, we thank you that right at the very beginning of your word. You have set before us this blessed institution of marriage and the roles of men and women. And we do thank you, Lord, that this which is so foundational to society is set forth in such clear terms to us that we might understand, that we might live by what we read here. And yet we, lo- we are slow, O oh Lord, to obey. We are slow to be conformed to your word. And therefore, we pray for the Holy Spirit not only to give us understanding but to give us obedient hearts to do whatever you would have to say to us today. We pray in the name of Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. We live in an age today in which our society is doing its very level best to erase or at least to minimize the differences between men and women. And from the time that they're in grade school, the idea is being pumped now into children's heads that they can decide whether to be a boy or a girl. But as we read in the Genesis account, we discover that a loving, amazing, creative act of God brought into being the wonderful, mysterious existence of a man and a woman and their masculinity and femininity, and all of this with a view to bringing joy to his creatures. Now think with me what it would be like, how colorless it would be if the whole human race were unisex, How bland it would be, even if there were two with different procreative organs, but in every other way they were exactly the same. The transgender movement and the modern feminism movement, they rob both men and women of their distinctive attractiveness. Now these movements, they also undermine the happiness that comes when a man and a woman fulfill their God-ordained roles. Well, having observed that it wasn't good for a man to be alone, God said, I will make a helper comparable to him, verse 18. And as his matching opposite, Eve would supply what was lacking in Adam. 
And the picture of marriage that's given in this place is that of two people that are similar and yet different, different in such a way that they complement and complete one another. You slice an orange down the middle, and each side exactly corresponds to the other. And when the two halves are joined together, they fit together exactly. And together they form one complete unit. And the differences between the man and the woman, they represent different needs that need to be met in order for there to be a happy marriage. Now God has ordained the marriage ordinance in such a way that self-denial on the part of both the man and the woman are essential to their happiness. The great destroyer of marriage, dear people, is selfishness. If you boil it all down to all the problems that we have in our relationships, it comes to this, that we want to get something from the other person, and we don't want to give. We're self-preoccupied. And the idea of finding your perfect soulmate, this is an essentially selfish idea. The idea that I'm going to go out there and find somebody that's just going to make me happy in all these different ways, and I discover, lo and behold, a year later, this, wasn't, this was kind of a dream, this is selfish in its orientation. The story is told of a lady that wanted to marry four different men in her lifetime. She had it all planned out. And she said that each one would help her with the four things that she needed the most. First, she wanted to marry a banker. Second, a movie star. The next, a clergyman. And finally, a funeral director. And when she was asked why, she answered, one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and four to go. Well, we laugh and we smile, but this woman, she represents the selfish mentality, you see, that people have as they enter into marriage. And the biblical picture is the opposite. It's a picture of each one meeting each other's needs. And this process of meeting each other's needs requires God's grace. John Piper puts it this way, God created us not to be the cul-de-sacs of his bounty, but conduits. No man is complete unless he is conducting grace, like electricity, between God and another person. We are to be vessels of grace, not cul-de-sacs, or just ones that receive it and do not convey it. And we are to be to one another, a man and wife, vessels of conveying God's grace to one another. Well, having paused in our series on Genesis to expand what is said here in Genesis 2 about marriage... Recently, we preached two sermons, emphasizing in those two sermons how, based on her differences, a wife has certain needs, and how the husband is to meet those needs. And then in our last sermon, we began to look at some of the typical needs of a husband and how they can be met. We spent all of our attention upon this issue of domestic support. And I want to just spend a little time on this again, to remind you it's been a couple of weeks, and add a few thoughts to what we were not able to get to before we move into some of the other points that are there on your outlines. Well, as we think of domestic support, the necessity of meeting this need is revealed right here in Genesis chapter 2. God gave Adam a task. He said in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. He gave him a job. Back in chapter 1 and verse 28, you also find that he was tasked with being fruitful and multiplying and replenishing the earth and subduing it. And for the accomplishment of these tasks that God gave to Adam, it was obvious that he needed a helper. And so in chapter 2 and verse 18, we read that God observed this deed. 
He says, it's not good that the man is alone. I will make him a helper comparable or answering to him. And as we saw in our last study, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's inspired commentary on this passage. Man is not from the woman, but woman from the man. Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. And according to their divine calling, therefore, wives are called upon to be supporters of their husbands in their calling. And the primary way in which she does this is through the domestic support that she gives to her family in the home. And so the, the whole orientation, as we look at Proverbs chapter 31, is that of finding self-fulfillment in a, not finding self-fulfillment in a separate career, but it's the, this issue of, of orienting her life and her ministry to the home. And again, in Titus chapter 2, the older women are to admonish the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers. And there it is, keepers at home. Good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Now, domestic support is one of the primary needs that a wife needs to meet in her husband. And this includes making the home attractive and neat and cheerful and warm. It includes showing the support for him in his calling. And especially in this sin-cursed world, a man's job is often going to require as it were, very difficult situations, a stressful environment, working long hours, beating down competition, and working through misunderstandings and the like. And this domestic support, therefore, it includes making a home a safe place for him to come back to. Your husband's out in the world, and he's dealing with nasty people all day. He looks forward to coming home finally to a place that is an oasis, a refreshment in contrast to the negativity and the strife that he's endured throughout the day. Most people, most men, they feel overworked. They labor hard to keep their head above water. They often feel overwhelmed. They think of all the tasks also that they need to do when they get home. And they may seem to be in the driver's seat. They may seem that they're in control of their lives. But if they're honest, they often confess that they have great anxieties over their job and over their responsibilities. And often, therefore, there is the expectation that in return for this, his wife will take care of the house and the children. And there's a biblical reason for that expectation. It's an unspoken trade-off. The husband expects his wife to simplify his life by cooking the meals, by washing the clothes, by keeping things in order. And so in our last sermon, I related the case, you remember, of that wife that was not meeting this need. And so when a woman at work started to meet this need, this man fell into an affair. And this often happens. It's not an isolated case. It's a basic need that needs to be met. The woman in Proverbs 31 is doing the very things that I've been describing. And to many of you women, I think that she might seem like a super mom. She might seem like a superwoman. But she should also be seen as the kind of woman that's meeting her husband's deepest needs. Well, I realize it's a really high standard. You read through that chapter, Proverbs 31, it seems very intimidating. You seem like you're never going to come up to the standard of that woman. But let me encourage you, dear, we, dear women, with the prospect that if you really seek to be of this kind of support in the home, God will give you a great reward. He will bless you in that endeavor, no matter how imperfect it might be. Yes, it might seem that having your needs being met by your husband is slow in coming. He might not be giving you the things that we spoke about earlier. 
It requires the grace of God for your husband to exercise spiritual leadership we spoke about, to enter into meaningful conversation as women need, to provide financial support, to show that he's devoted to you above every human, other human being. But as you give him this support, this helps him greatly in responding to you in the way that God has called him to, to minister to your needs. So before we go on, I want to just, just give a couple pointers before we move on to the second main heading and the outlines that are provided. First of all, to keep to do this, seek to find out in particular what your husband's needs are. Is it important to him that you have dinner at 6 o'clock? Is it important that the house is picked up and in order? That the children are in bed by 9 o'clock? Uh, is there... Is it important to him that you exercise greater care in the way you spend your money? Is, there, is it important that you give more support to him in his career and not be discouraging to him? To find out, you need to find out what his needs are. Not every man's needs are exactly the same. What's important to him? And then just one other pointer before we move on. Avoid those things that are the opposite of this kind of support, like carelessness in spending. The kind of vanity that leads you to excess in spending your, on your wardrobe in your home. Or like lack of contentment with your situation. Always nagging him that he needs to get up higher, needs to get a better job, needs to have an extra job. An undisciplined lifestyle. Negativity in your speech that drags things down. Undermining his efforts to train and discipline the children. Showing lack of confidence and even disdain in his decisions. So don't do those things that undermine his leadership and his ministry in the home. And if you doubt the wisdom of something that he's considering, ask non-threatening questions. Assume that maybe there's some factors that he didn't tell you about. And to encourage you in all this, remember that giving your husband this kind of domestic support, it gives him immense pleasure. It's not just that it keeps him from getting upset. It's that when he sees you making these efforts... Maybe not perfectly, but when he sees you do this and as he sees you persevere in this, love is going to well up in his heart for you. It's going to make him more willing, you see, to expend himself to ministering to your needs. And as both of you in love and in self-denial seek to love each other by meeting these deep needs, the greater will be your joy. And above all, the Lord is pleased. It is a sacrifice well-pleasing unto God. And now I want to move on, and we're going to be very brief on this second main heading. The second need that wives must meet is that of marital intimacy. And here I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now if this was a marriage seminar in which husbands and wives were the only ones in attendance, we would go into more detail and be more specific about this matter. But I want to simply remind you here of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 and following. Paul says, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
But without going into details here, let me simply point out that you wives need to understand that just as many women feel duped when they discover that their husband is less caring and affectionate in marriage than he was when they were courting, it can happen the same way. A man feels that he's been cheated when his wife doesn't meet this deep-seated need that is being described in these verses that I just read. And when a man chooses his wife, he promises to be faithful to her for life. And he makes a commitment. He trusts that his bride is going to be available, that she will satisfy his needs. And yes, it's true that it's the man's sinful lust that lures him into a relationship that makes him unfaithful. But it's also true that many a man falls into sin, at least in part, because to use the imagery of Proverbs chapter 5, the cistern in his own home is stopped up and is not available. So dear ladies, if this is an area where you have been falling short, let me just urge you to take the time this afternoon or whatever to go to the other passages. And this passage that we just read, the other ones that are listed there in your outlines, and pray over them that God would teach you and to help you in this particular area. And I would just remind you that according to God's word, it's that which takes place that's outside the boundaries of marriage, that's dirty and filthy in God's eyes. This is not dirty. This is not filthy in marriage. Within the bonds of marriage, we're talking about something that's a sacrament, so to speak. It's a means of grace. It's holy. It's pleasing to God. And it's God's intention that there would be holy pleasure between a man and a woman. And that this would be a means of grace by which you would be bound together in love. Well, that's all I want to say about this point. I would just urge you to pray over this and consider it if this is an area that is a problem in your life and your marriage. But I want to now come to the third need that needs to be met by the wife. And it is what we're going to spend the rest of our time on this afternoon, the whole issue of growing attractiveness. I, as I got to the issue of the fourth major point and considered it, I began to think, well, this is just as much a need of, of the wives as it is of the husband, the issue of giving admiration and praise and encouragement. And so I thought maybe it would be better to deal with it actually as something that is needful on both sides and do so in a separate sermon. I don't know. We'll see what, 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 uh, what we do. But we're going to concentrate on this issue the rest of our time, the issue of growing attractiveness. Now, when I speak of attractiveness, I'm assuming that there are both external and internal facets to this attractiveness. In the text of Scripture that are listed in the outlines in the bulletin that you have there, they primarily relate to the internal spiritual attractiveness of a godly woman. But the Bible speaks about both aspects of attractiveness. There is external attractiveness is, is part of the issue that, that the Bible addresses very plainly. And during a time of famine, for instance, Abram and his wife Sarah, they went down to Egypt in order that they might survive. And as they were approaching Egypt, Abram said to Sarah, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, and they will let you live. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake. Genesis chapter 12. And the main point of the passage is to expose relying on this sin of, of lying. It basically was a half-truth rather than God for his safety. 
But it's also safe to assume that one of the first things that attracted Abram to his wife was what her good looks. He says, you're a beautiful woman. He obviously was attracted to her because of that. You come to chapter 24 and verse 16. It's noted that Isaac's future bride, Rebekah, was, quote, very beautiful to behold. And later on, we also read of the way that Isaac, he made the same mistake. He seeks to save his own skin by asking Rebekah to say that she was his sister. But the lie was exposed. You remember when Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked through a window and he saw Isaac giving affection to his wife. Later on, we read of the way that Jacob, now we're speaking about another case, he was attracted to Rachel rather than Leah because she was beautiful of form and appearance. Genesis 29, 17. And here's a text that speaks not only about her, her facial appearance, but also her beautiful form. He was attracted to it. In 1 Samuel chapter 25 and verse 3, we read that Abigail was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. And later on in the chapter, we read of her marriage to David. And in that place, both her internal and her external beauty is emphasized. In your notes, the whole passage is identified. We're not going to have time to be able to go over that passage, but it's a beautiful picture of both aspects of her character, external and internal beauty. In the Song of Solomon, the beloved is repeatedly He he repeatedly praises his bride for her beauty. In Ezekiel 24, God announces that the prophet Ezekiel's wife is going to die. And that this would be an object lesson to the Israelites about the time when God would take away their beautiful sanctuary. And their beautiful sons. And their beautiful daughters. And significantly, the pain that Ezekiel was going to experience when God takes his wife away... It's intensified by what God says. He says, I will take away from you the desire of your eyes. Something about the way she looked is going to make it more painful for him to to lose her. She's attractive to him. Ezekiel 24, 15. In the same way, the tabernacle, the stronghold, was to be removed from God's disobedient. And this was their joy and their glory, the desire of their eyes. And it would hurt what God was going to do to them. Now in each of these places, it's the beauty of the woman that attracts the attention of the lover. And there are, these are the first examples that just came right to my mind as I was writing out various texts of scripture. We could add later on uh, examples of Bathsheba, Tamar, Esther, Job's daughters, and no doubt some more. Well, there are examples in the Bible of a young man being handsome. David was, was of good countenance, we read. Absalom was, was of good appearance. His, he was handsome in his appearance. But there seems to be far less emphasis in the Bible about the appearance of men attracting women as they would marry one another. And off the top of my head, the only example that I could find that speaks about that specific thing is the Song of Solomon, in which both the man and the woman are praising each other for their appearance and for other features in them. Therefore, I gather from this emphasis on the beauty of the woman that it's especially this that's important to the man in a marriage. Now, in a moment, we're going to turn to what is especially emphasized, though, in the Bible, which is the internal beauty of a woman. But we are not disembodied spirits. 
And it's super spiritual to think, well, let's just forget about the way we look and the way we dress and the way we adorn ourselves and so on. We're not disembodied spirits. And it's an inescapable fact that a man is drawn to the external beauty of a woman that he marries. And here I want to be careful that I, that I don't go bludgeon the consciences of people that struggle with factors that are beyond their control. And what's more important to one husband may not be of equal importance to another husband. But the story is all too common of a woman who loses 80 pounds in order that she might finally get somebody to date her, catches a man, marries him, and then gains 100 pounds. And he's not a disembodied spirit. He struggles, therefore, mightily afterwards. And there's many a man that leaves a woman over this issue, and many a Christian man that won't do it because of his view of divorce. But he gets bitter over this, and he finds his romantic attraction to wane. And in some cases, he considered it to be the most important emotional need to be met with his wife. It's not equal in all marriages. There are great differences. And here I want to urge husbands not to be unreasonable. Not every woman is genetically cut out to be a supermodel. Don't expect your dear wife to live on a starvation diet for the rest of her life. Don't expect that she can have six children and it doesn't affect the way she looks. Don't fail to take into account the changing metabolism that comes with age. But I would urge you, wives, not to let yourselves go without any concern for your appearance. Do what's reasonable to keep yourself in shape. Take care of what you wear. Do whatever will help remain appealing to your husband. You see, a man doesn't tend to stay interested in a woman that runs around the house all day long looking like an unmade bed. Well, this is what the Bible has to teach us about the place of the attractiveness of woman and making efforts to keep this attractiveness as much as possible in place. But having noticed the importance of maintaining this external attractiveness, what I really want to come to is what's far more important it, the, the issue that is especially emphasized in the Bible, and that is the internal spiritual attractiveness of a woman. And here the classic text is 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at this passage, even though years ago Pastor, Pastor Hill preached through this passage, but we're, and we're not going to expound all the details of it, but especially as it applies to marriage, we want to take notice of what Peter has to say. Now, the heading in your outlines is Growing Attractiveness. It's well nigh impossible for a woman to become more beautiful when she's 80 than when she was 20, externally. But it is possible for her to become more beautiful internally and spiritually. And that's why we speak especially of a growing attractiveness in this realm. It's very possible in the way that matters most to God it ought to matter the most to every godly husband to have a growing attractiveness. Outward beauty will only attract a man's eye, but inner beauty will keep his heart. Outward beauty fades, but inner beauty endures for eternity. Outward beauty is admired by men, but inner beauty is precious in the sight of the eyes of God. What I want to just ask, and I should have given you a little bit of a warning here, I want to just open it up for a few contributions from each of you there, as men in the congregation, what are some of the spiritual traits that are in a woman that you find especially attractive? Maybe it's not spiritual traits, don't, I'm not, don't get hung up on that word, but things that are of a nature of her character, in other words. Yes, Mike. 
Check. The way she cares for the children. Okay, yes. Yes, Chris. Okay, being faithful in her devotion, seeing her with her Bible, seeing her prayer. Yes, very much so, yeah. That's a good reminder for the man when he hurries off in the morning to work. Well, I better get up a little earlier tomorrow. Or maybe I need to spend a little extra time tonight when I get home. The other things that you you have observed or you would like to observe. Yes, Matt. Being willing to communicate, you say? Yes. And, and, to, and to compromise. Okay, so not, not a woman that just digs her heels in and just, uh, it's my way or the highway, and just being stubborn. Yeah. Of course, that's something that men need to be like, too. They need to be gracious, not always wanting to have it their way. And uh, in love, we defer to each other in many decisions. Yes, it's Bob. Okay, having a cheerful wife. It's the opposite of being a grouchy wife and being a critical, down in the mouth type of a, type of a person all the time. You ever want to say something else? Having a quiet spirit. Quiet and gentle spirit. Okay, you could get right into the text there. You, you already read my passage here. Or you know it very, you know it from, from having read it in the past. Any other other things that uh, you would notice or have thought about? Of course, we're all assuming that you are saying this because this is what you see in your wife. So it's a good public testimony of some of the graces that we see in our wives. Anything else that you want to mention? Yes. Inoffensive speech. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, you, by, by unoffensive, you mean in in a, in a way that doesn't rub people the wrong way? Is that what you mean? Yeah, it doesn't you know, it, argumentative and and uh, um, getting little digs in. Is that what you have in mind? Okay. All right, well, let's, uh, let's take a few minutes here and look at what Peter has to say. And there are three things that are found in this passage. You divide yourself very conveniently into verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, and then verses 5 and 6. And the word that encapsulates what we read in verses 1 and 2 is the word behavior. Let's read those words. Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct or your chaste behavior accompanied by fear. Now the husband that is supposed in this passage, in these verses, is not an easy man to please. Peter's talking about difficult husbands. And in it seems that there's a good chance he's talking about unconverted husbands that need to be converted to Christ. It appears he has in mind a man that's very difficult to live with. He's an ordinary codger. He has an irritable temperament. 
He has a raspy response to just about everything you say, just about everything you do. That's what he's assuming here. But even though he's a tough man to live with, he isn't blind. He can't ignore godly behavior in his wife. And this is ultimately what Peter says is going to win him. And the way that she wins him over is not by little preaching notes that she puts on his desk. It's not by nudging him in the, in, in the ribs in the sermon. Instead, he notices her gracious behavior. He notices her submissive disposition to his demands, no matter how nasty he is. He can't escape seeing this. Now, the one exception is her response to any demand that he might make that would be contrary to what God's word says. He sees that even when he goes ballistic, even if he's asking God, asking her to disobey God and he gets angry over it, he sees that there's the point in which she fears God and she won't buckle under. There's a strength to her in spite of her submissiveness in other areas. But as long as it doesn't contradict God's word, no matter how nasty he is, she graciously complies. He sees her courage on one hand in the face of threats. He sees her self-control in refusing to respond in kind to his hateful and his provocative words. He sees her persistence. He sees her steadfastness in faith. He sees the calmness of her demeanor, even when he is most obnoxious and most provoking. He sees her comply with the most unreasonable of his demands and doing so without a fight. This is what's going to win him over. He is won over by what one has been what is called the silent preaching of a lovely life. Now, all too often, women resort to a cheap substitute for what Peter describes here. And it might seem quicker to get the results. And the substitute that I have in mind is scheming in secret. And God says to the woman married to a difficult man, let me handle your man. You leave the preaching to me. What I want from you is a gracious, compliant, patient behavior. That's what he won't be able to ignore. But that's really tough. It's difficult. And especially for a woman with an ordinary husband. So she's tempted, you see, to resort to secret manipulation. Do you remember how this happened back in the book of Genesis? We're going to get to this as we study through the book. This is what Isaac's wife, Rebekah, did. She schemed. God had promised to bless the younger son, Jacob, and Rebekah knew this. In a sense, she had greater spiritual insight than her husband Isaac did in this regard. God had promised to bless Jacob rather than Esau. But Isaac was attracted to Esau's manly qualities, and he's determined, therefore, to give the birthright to Esau. And so instead of gentle persuasion, and instead of leaving it to God to work on Isaac's heart, she resorts to the scheme, you remember, where while Esau's out hunting, Jacob cooks up some stew, puts off some fur on his arms to make him, him like he's the furry of the son of the two, and he seeks to deceive his father and get the blessing from his father. And the fundamental sin of a woman that resorts to such manipulations is the failure to leave things in God's hands. She finds it virtually impossible to believe that the Lord can handle her husband without her help. So she resorts to these manipulative te techniques. Moodiness, perhaps, 
pouting, sulking, sexual bargaining, lying sometimes, as Rebecca did, and deceiving. What she would call perhaps shading the truth a little bit. And unfortunately, this, this works with many husbands. She can get away sometimes. And sometimes it will make her life a little bit easier. Manipulation sometimes works. It worked with Isaac. The blessing was given to Jacob. He was deceived by the scheme of putting those animal skins on Jacob's arms and so on. Her plan worked, but it also resulted in no end of sorrow. Jacob had to leave the home, and Rebekah never saw him for the rest of his life, for the rest of her life. And it resulted especially in great sorrow that we're going to see as we get to that part of the book, of the uh, book of Genesis. Even though her manipulation worked, the whole event was an ugly, dark splotch upon her biography. So, dear wives, no matter, no amount of rationalization is ever going to justify manipulation. That's not the way you're to deal with a difficult man. Your husband can't be manipulated into a lasting change. He can't be manipulated into a change of heart. This change can only come by God's grace. And God has ordained the kind of gracious godly behavior that Peter is commending here in 1 Peter chapter 3. You can scheme, you can pressure, you can pout, you can whine, and you can get your husband sometimes to surrender to your will. And if you're good at this, you can develop just the right techniques that weakens him and lures him into your trap. But it's never going to change his heart. God alone can do that. And he uses a gracious, submissive deportment, the kind of deportment that's described in these verses. Well, this is the first thing that Peter speaks about, the issue of behavior. And the second, we have summed it up with the word adornment, verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Now here Peter, he warns wives against going overboard, patching up the externals, while the ugliness is boiling over from what's inside her heart. But we need to be careful that we don't go beyond what Peter says. Some people, they, some preachers, they run wild when they get to this text. They... They talk about as if it's a terrible sin for a woman to ever have jewelry or ever, ever, ever wear anything, any makeup or braid her hair or do anything with her hair and so on. They use this text to, to go far beyond what I think Peter is intending in this place. It's interesting that as he mentions her hair and he mentions jewelry, he also means, mentions wearing dresses at the end of verse 3. In the New King James, he writes about putting on fine apparel. And it's interesting, the word fine is in italics. It's not in the original. It's supplied by the translators. So if we're to interpret him literally and say, well, that you're not to be wearing jewelry, you're not to be wearing, you're not to be, you're wearing uh, your hair up and, and so on, you're also not to wear any clothes. Obviously, that's not what he's saying here. He's not counseling nudity, you see. He's not bad-mouthing a tasteful use of cosmetics or coming home from the hairdresser with a new hairdo. That's not his aim. His aim is to say, this shouldn't be your priority. This shouldn't be the fundamental and most beautiful thing about you. Now, it's a shame that 
Some have not learned the importance of keeping themselves attractive. There's a place for that, as we've emphasized earlier. And we need to remember that all day long, husbands encounter stunningly attractive women that are out there in the work world. But what do they see when they come home? A woman has just been totaled, it looks like. And on the other hand, Peter is not saying that you ought to try to compete with the women that are on the, the cover of Cosmopolitan magazine. That's not, not to be your aim. Your aim is, yes, to take care of yourself, be presentable, but above all, let your adornment, he says, be the hidden person of the heart. Now seek to cultivate, he says, that inner beauty that manifests itself in the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit. Words that Bob quoted a little moment ago. And what a beautiful expression that is. God views a gentle and a quiet spirit as imperishable. And Peter says it's precious in the sight of God, this, this grace. And the words that's translated precious is from the same Greek term that Peter used earlier when he referred to imperishable faith. Chapter 1 and verse 7. When he referred to the imperishable blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 1 and verse 19. And so God is stressing this. This is something that's, that's precious in the sight of God. It's an imperishable grace. An inner attitude God sees as important and wonderful in his sight. But maybe some of you say, well, God didn't make me kind of a mousy type of a person. It's just I'm not that way. Well, there are many women that take what Peter says about submission to mean mousiness. And hidden away in the description of the excellent wife in Proverbs chapter 31, the writer drops this comment, strength and dignity are her clothing. And she smiles at the future, Proverbs 31, 25. But inwardly, though she has this graciousness to her, she has strength of character, she has convictions. But this same woman, Peter says, is not loud and bossy. She's adorned with the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. She manifests a tranquil demeanor under pressure. Now this, this, this doesn't sound like weakness to me. In the midst of pressures, that's when it's difficult. She's free from panic. She's got things under control in her spirit. And this happens by the power of the Spirit of God. It's God's Spirit that could give this grace. And you need to pray for that grace. That God's Spirit would fill your heart with that kind of grace to be irritable and yet to keep it under control. I shouldn't say grace to be irritable, but to be tempted to irritability, but to keep it under control. And with this quietness, Peter also tells us, is a gentle spirit. She is a spirit that shows that she no longer fights against God. She never longer fights against her husband. There's an absence of struggle, an absence of a contentious spirit. He's not like the contentious woman that's described in the book of Proverbs again and again. This is her adornment. When we looked at her behavior, her adornment, and the third word that captures this inner beauty is submission, verses 5 and 6. Let's read those words. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God, who adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abram, calling him Lord, whose daughters are, you are if you do good, and are not afraid with any terror. 
Now, to all too many, all too often, the ideal Christian woman that's portrayed in many books that are written even in our day, she's portrayed like this energetic supermom. She dashes all over the place. She's the one that juggles all kinds of things in her life, and she's amazing with all that she can do in a day's time. She rushes off to this class, to that class. She takes this course. She goes to these sporting events with her kids. She takes some of them to music lessons and a hundred other things. They, they crowd into her time. It's amazing the supermom, the superwoman that does all these things. And this is the person that's often admired the most. But instead, Peter tells us that she's like Sarah at her best when she is submissive to her husband. As one writer put it, it's hard to imagine Sarah leaving a note pinned to the tent one evening as Abraham shuffled home from the fields, bone-tired and famished with hunger. Hey, mutton pot pie in the stove oven. Gone to Torah study with the ladies at Bethel. Took the small chariot. Be home late. Don't worry. Be sure to give Ishmael herbs for his cough before sundown and bathe Isaac, Sarah. P.S. Don't forget to close all the flaps when you go to bed. Sandstorm is coming. Well, this is not what we find in Sarah. And yes, it took a good while for her to learn to honor her husband that's described in the way that's described here. But eventually, as Peter tells us, she learned to trust in God. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Sarah did which is right, you see. She didn't just talk about it. She didn't just go to classes about it. This brings us to the attention of this. It's a cheap substitute, I think, for the kind of attractiveness that Peter's describing here. A large percentage of Christian wives, they know more than they put into practice. And yet they're always going to another seminar about being a good woman and a good wife and so on, being a good mother. They join another Bible study. They read another book. They go to another seminar. They busy themselves with learning and discussing and studying and discovering more and more. And what's the result? They just heap themselves more and more guilt because they don't do anything about it. Learning and talking more, you see, it's a cheap substitute for stopping and putting into practice what God has to say. Well, if we had the time, we would look at another woman that had this inner as well as outer beauty, the example of Abigail, I just leave it to you to read the passage that's there in your outlines, the verses there in 1 Samuel chapter 25. She's a wonderful example of just what Peter is talking about in this place. But I just close with what Jesus said when he said, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Luke chapter 11, verse 28. He doesn't say, Blessed are those who hear the word, full stop. He says, blessed are the wolves that hear the word of God and keep it. These are the ones that are happy. He said, the happy ones are those who hear and do God's word. May God give you grace to do what God has called you to do. And in this way, this is, this is the most basic thing, one of the most basic things by which you can minister to your husband is to be the kind of woman that's described in these passages. It's a ministry of grace. It's something that every Christian man needs among his great needs to be met in his marriage. May God give you grace. May God give us patience as we wait upon you, as we 
all are struggling with meeting each other's needs more and more to grow in grace and as Piper puts it to be conduits of grace to one another as we grow together in likeness to Christ let's pray Father we thank you and bless you that you've given to us the example of Sarah and of Abigail and many other godly women in the Bible we thank you that you've given us this plain instruction that's been set before us in 1 Peter chapter 3 We plead with you, Lord, that you would bless our homes with the kinds of wives, mothers that are described in this passage, described in other parts of the word of God. We pray that that you would be pleased to cause this church to be built upon homes and built with homes in which husbands and wives are complementing one another and in denying themselves to minister to one another and to meet one another's needs. Lord, this takes grace. We are selfish by nature. We want to get rather than give. Help us to be givers of grace, to be conduits of grace to one another. Bless us, we pray, that we might be more like our Lord and Savior in all the ways that we have described, in the ways that we sang about even earlier this this afternoon. Help us, Lord, for we are weak. We need you. We need your grace. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.